In today's podcast, we discuss the fact that Jeremiah is consistently delivering the message given by the Lord, that Jerusalem was about to fall. It did not make him very popular. It is a message that is discouraging to the warriors that are charged to protect the city. Jeremiah's message gives further weight to the charge that he is a traitor, ready to desert to the Babylonians, and he's urging everyone to surrender to the Babylonians. These are treasonous words to those who still believe that Yahweh would deliver the people and the city. Jeremiah's nightmare now gets worse. He's thrown into a cistern to die. Join pastors Kirk Sexton and Bruce Johnson as we discuss the context, historical setting, and archaeological nature of a cistern in Jeremiah's day. Welcome to the Full Dig Podcast. I'm Pastor Kirk Sexton, and with me is my colleague and good friend, Pastor Bruce Johnson. Not a surprise at all to see you again, Kirk, here in our recording studios. Well, it's good to be with you, Bruce, and was a busy weekend here at the campus. We were had the ho- holiday house. Holiday house and just a lot of activity. Yeah, uh, and a, uh, a joyous time, I thought. Well, yeah. Also, uh, we had a group in Mexico doing the mis- Mexico mission trip. So. Right, we were getting intelligence on them, getting pictures they were sending of yeah. different things they were doing. So, great well, weekend. Yeah, and we had a... Uh, Great time in worship on Sunday, and uh, you were in traditional, I was in contemporary, and uh, I was really blessed by the music in contemporary. It was awesome. We had great music in the traditional services as well. I know we had the kids' ministry, kids yeah. singing, and that was nice. That was really nice. Yeah. I love it when they're in their orange shirts. Exactly. Well, we had a text, uh, Jeremiah 38. I think it's got to be another one of those texts you don't hear preached very much. If only because of all of those strange Bible names at the very beginning of it. Yeah, maybe that's it. That would, that would scare me off. That's why you're going to begin the reading of the text. because all the Give bad, me all the hard names. All, all the there. tough ones are in okay. the beginning. <laughs> well, uh, let's begin this reading. This is from Jeremiah 38, beginning at verse 1. Shephatiah, son of Matan, Gedaliah, son of Pashur, Jehukal, son of Shelemiah, and Pashur, son of Malkiah, heard what Jeremiah was telling the people when he said, This is what the Lord says. Whoever stays in this city will die by the sword, famine, or plague, but whoever goes over to the Babylonians will live. They will escape with their lives. They will live. And this is what the Lord says. The city will be, will certainly be given into the hands of the army of the king of Babylon, who will capture it. Then the official said to the king, This man should be put to death. He is discouraging the soldiers who are left in the city, as well as all the people, by the things he is saying to them. This man is not seeking the good of these people, but their ruin. He is in your hands, King Zedekiah answered. The king can do nothing to oppose you. So they took Jeremiah and put him into the cistern of Milkajah, the king's son, which was in the courtyard of the guard. They lowered Jeremiah by ropes into the cistern. It had no water in it, only mud. And Jeremiah sank down into the mud. Mm. And then continuing on on verse 7, But Edbed melech a Cushite, 
an official. So in our NRV, NRSV translation on Sunday, Bruce, um, we had Ethiopian eunuch, I think. Right. So uh, the Hebrew says Cush, and we know that that's in the area of modern Ethiopia, Tria. So a lot of modern Bible translations will translate Ethiopian instead of Cush at that point. Mm-hmm. And the word eunuch here, we think of eunuch as somebody that uh, has um, been castrated, a male has been castrated, but uh, it really means more of an official. It's mm. a, a word that has more than one meaning here. And that's why the NRV has, instead of uh, uh, Ethiopian eunuch, uh, Cushite, an official, official. Mm-hmm. in the royal palace, right? So he heard that they had put Jeremiah into the cistern. While the king was sitting in the Benjamin gate, Edbed-Melech went out of the palace and said to him, My lord, the king, these men have acted wickedly in all they have done to Jeremiah the prophet. They have thrown him into a cistern where he will starve to death when there is no longer any bread in the city. Then the king commanded Ebed-Melech the Cushite, Take thirty men from here with you, and lift Jeremiah the prophet out of the cistern before he dies. And that brings up another question I had for you, Bruce. So on Sunday we heard there were three men, but here in the NIV it says thirty men. Which is it? So in the Masoretic text of the Hebrew it says thirty. And then they have one or two other Bible manuscripts that say three. So you have to make a choice. Well, what's the better reading? What's the original reading? Was it three or 30? So the NIV goes with the established reading of 30, and the New Revised Standard Version goes with a couple Bible manuscripts that say three instead of 30. But it's just the difference of one letter, a very small Hebrew letter between those two. And you think that maybe 30 fits better in your mind because you would need maybe more men to make this happen. Yes. Remember, this cistern is in the palace of the guard. And so you have other soldiers around, and they're kind of saying, well, what are you doing? So you have to have a show of force like, no, this is what the king said was all right. Yeah. If there's going to be a a rumble, Mm -hmm. it's better to have 30 men than three. Yeah. Well, let me continue on verse 11. So Ebed-Melech took the men with him and went to a room under the treasury in the palace. He, had, he took some old rags and worn-out clothes from there and let them down with ropes to Jeremiah in the cistern. Ebed-Melech the Cushite said to Jeremiah, Put these old rags and worn-out clothes under your arms to pad the ropes. Jeremiah did so, and they pulled him up with the ropes and lifted him out of the cistern. And Jeremiah remained in the courtyard of the guard. It's a nice detail talking about making sure he has rags so he can put them under his arms so that the strain on his uh, underarms won't be too great as he left him up. But there's a lot here. It makes you wonder, well, how did Jeremiah get to this point? What's going on in Jerusalem and in the kingdom of Judah before this time? So I thought you and I could go through kind of step by step. How do we get to this point mm-hmm. uh, throughout the reign of the last king of Jerusalem, last king of Judah, before the destruction of Jerusalem in 586? That was Zedekiah. Mm-hmm. And in his 11-year reign, we different things uh, happen that uh, interact with the story of Jeremiah. But it's the last three years of his reign that are absolutely crucial. So mm-hmm. 
why don't we, uh, you and I go back and forth. We'll say, here's step one or step A. All right. So step A is that Zedekiah becomes king. He's appointed by the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, after Nebuchadnezzar had deposed his predecessor, who was his nephew, Jehoiakim, with an N. Uh, so that's how he becomes king in the first place. Yeah, and there is this ongoing power struggle. You've got the great power of Babylon, but Egypt had been a power too. So Zedekiah finds himself between these two powers, and he's wondering, where should I place my loyalty? Because he's a smaller nation, a smaller kind of had been overrun for many years. Right, has a smaller armor, ar- army, smaller resources at his disposal. So he's really got to play his cards right. We'll call that power circle point B okay. in this yeah. history, right? Yeah. And uh, we know that in that power struggle, eventually Zedekiah will choose the wrong side. He'll mm-hmm. put his trust in Egypt, and um, Egypt will lose that power struggle between Egypt and the Babylonians. Uh, the book of Second Kings mentioned that, that eventually... Um, the king of Babylon takes all the territory between the wadi of Egypt. That's not the Nile, but um, wadi that divides, say, the uh, southern part of Israel from the Sinai Desert, between that and the Euphrates River. So yeah. his route to come and rescue or, or support or save Jerusalem is, is cut off by the Babylonians. Right, so eventually that, that will be the end game. That's what happens at the very end of Zedekiah's reign. But Zedekiah doesn't know which way it'll go. So mm-hmm. he's, he's vacillating between these two powers. Right. I think the third point, point C, is that he has a lack of trust in the Lord. This mm-hmm. is King Zedekiah. Uh, at, when you look at his 11-year reign as a whole, we're told in the Bible that uh, neither Zedekiah nor his attendants nor the people of the land paid any attention to the words of the Lord that had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet. This is from the the second verse of Jeremiah chapter 37. Peterson highlights that in his his book, Run with the Horses. He talks a lot about how Zedekiah wasn't a believer, didn't, didn't trust in the Lord, didn't trust in the prophecies of Jeremiah. Yeah, when push came to shove, he was trying to pin on his own wisdom and what he could figure out um, talking with different advisors or different people that were bringing reports from other countries. Mm-hmm. So in the midst of this, as uh, he gets to the ninth year of his reign, remember he reigns only for 11 years, so we're getting to that final three years of his reign that are really crucial uh, as they impact the story of Jeremiah. Uh, Zedekiah does something unexpected. He sends two messengers to Jeremiah with, with this plea. Please pray to the Lord our God for us. And at that point, uh, the army of Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian army, had already marched against, uh, uh, begun to march against Jerusalem. And eventually they would surround the city. They would besiege it. Mm-hmm. It's at that point that the Pharaoh, uh, uh, during that period, Pharaoh Necho II, he begins marching out of Egypt. And when the king of Babylon, Babylon heard that they were marching, he retreats for a time from Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Now, at that point, King Zedekiah could get the wrong idea. He could think, okay, I've backed the right horse back in Egypt. Right. <laughs> it's going to be fine. And so God, through Jeremiah, sends a message to the king. And you can see this in chapter 37 of Jeremiah, verses 7 through 10. 
This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Tell the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of me, Pharaoh's army, which has marched out to support you, will go back to its own land, to Egypt. Then the Babylonians will return and attack the city. They will capture it and burn it down. Mm. This is what the Lord says. Do not deceive yourselves thinking that Babylonians will surely leave us. They will not. Even if you were to defeat the entire Babylonian army that is attacking you and only wounded men were left in their tents, they would come out and burn the city down. So... God That's very has, definitive, isn't it? Well, and God has pronounced judgment, and it's going to happen. It's going to happen. So uh, that's the word to the king of Jerusalem. Don't don't believe your eyes here. It's not going to happen. Not going to work. Nope. Mm-mm. Mm. Well, and then um, I guess point D is Jeremiah is arrested. Right, arrested the first time. So talk right. about that. So this is our first arrest. So he's, you remember, he bought the land, and he's going to go out. Uh, to his property, and he's going to go out through the Benjamin Gate, and there he's arrested by who? We, we're not sure. Some kind of is it a temple guard? Is it a royal guard? Is it a is it a guard of the of just that gate? Um, right, and it's just as the captain of the guards. So we don't know. We don't know which guard it was. It's kind of first question. It's the Gate of Benjamin, so we. No, it's a gate on the northern side of the city because it's the gate that leads to the territory of Benjamin, which is to the north there. Yeah. So we know that, but what kind of guard, how much power or authority does he have? That's kind of difficult to point and, down or and pin down. put Jeremiah in a vaulted cell in a dungeon where he remained a long time, it says, in 3716. And then at some point, Jeremiah begins to wonder if Jeremiah has a word from the Lord, <laughs> and I, I find or this, the king Zedekiah begins to. Work. I mean, Zedekiah, yeah, right. wonders, yeah, if 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 Jeremiah might have might have some information. Yeah, maybe he, he has some wisdom, and and we got him in a uh, dungeon. Maybe that's not good for for the kingdom to have him down there. Right. So, so he goes and finds Jeremiah, and he says, "Is there any word from the Lord?" And then Jeremiah says, "Yes." And he says, you will be delivered into the hands of the king of Babylon. A consistent message from Jeremiah. (laughs) Yes. And then Jeremiah asks, why is he being imprisoned? The dungeon will soon take his life if the king does nothing. So the king changes his conditions of his confinement, and he gave orders that uh, Jeremiah be placed in the courtyard of the guard, and he's given a loaf of bread from the street of the bakers for each day until the bread in the city was gone. So Jeremiah remained in the courtyard of the guard. That's 3721. And that will become Jeremiah's new home, the courtyard of the guard. So yeah. again, it's the captain of the guard that arrests him. Is it the same courtyard of that same guard that he's in? We're, we're not quite sure, but let's, let's just say that maybe it is. It's the guard that's really attached to protecting the king and the royal family. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's guard that arrests Jeremiah, uh, and he's uh, pulled out of the dungeon, but he's put in the courtyard of the guard. So it's got to be a, kind of a tense environment for Jeremiah to be in there. Right. It's like being under house arrest. I mean, he's doesn't seem like he's chained or anything, but he obviously can't leave that courtyard either. And what's dangerous to for Jeremiah at this point, we'll call this point E, is that Zedekiah the king seems to wash his hands of Jeremiah. Mm-hmm. He becomes less and less active. 
uh, right before this, he had secretly wanted to know from Chair Mike, so what's the deal? What what do I need to know? And Chairman Mike says, well, the city's going to fall. And and knowing that, the king says, you know, I can't get any good news out of this guy. We'll just put him in the courtyard, but yeah. And then he goes back to trying to figure out what does he need to know about what's going on in Egypt, what's going on with the Babylonians. And he becomes involved in that kind of military strategy for the remainder of his reign as king. So now we have point F. Jeremiah is now thrown into a cistern. So there's these four men that go to the king. With the strange-sounding names. Yes, and, and they have had it with him. He's, he continues to do this. It's not good for our soldiers. It's not good for our community. It's not good for spirits of the men, basically, right? right. That he's, he's, he's a downer. <laughs> yes, we need all the help we can get, and he's getting the people that are guarding the city to give up. And then Zedekiah just says, well, he's in your hands. Do what you want with him, basically. And uh, he says, I won't oppose you. And they throw him into this cistern. And we were talking um, about the the being under siege. The The cistern is is probably void of a lot of water because they've had to use that water. Exactly. A cistern is not fresh water. Fresh water you get from a spring or a well. So a cistern is not fresh water, but it's like runoff rainwater that you've collected. You've you've arranged some channels and whatnot. They direct the water into a certain hole in the ground that you've dug. And if you dig a big hole, you can, can store a lot of rainwater in that. Mm-hmm. So that's the situation. So it's, it's kind of empty. Um, they put him in this cistern and this uh, Malchijah, the king's son, which was in the courtyard of the guard, they lowered Jeremiah by ropes into the cistern. It had no water in it, only mud, and Jeremiah sunk down into the mud. That doesn't sound very pleasant at all, no, does it? it sounds, I was asking you about the uh, how cold is it down in one of those cisterns, and then you sh- you kind of shocked me by saying you've swam in cisterns. I've swum in cisterns in Jerusalem, yes. <laughs> I, I think this was in January, so not, not the greatest time in the year to swim in a cistern in Jerusalem, but I did uh, a cistern, one of the twin cisterns under the Echo Homo uh, convent of the Sisters of Zion, a Roman Catholic community in Jerusalem. And they gave us permission to swim in these cisterns as we tried to explore a a tunnel that led from the cisterns to the Temple Mount, which has now been excavated and can walk it uh, pretty easily. But when I was there, you could not. So we're trying to figure out where do these cisterns go? And it's pretty cold. It's like jumping into a pool in Scottsdale, an unheated pool in January. Here, it's like, ugh, it's pretty well, cold. I know this is maybe a, a difficult question, but what motivated you to go swimming in this cold, cold water? It, it was discovery. The, <laughs> the chance for archaeological discovery, of course. Okay. <laughs> All right. So Jeremiah has sunk in the mud, but this other official, this Edbed Melek comes and rescues Jeremiah. Right. So Edbed Melek goes to the king, and, and remember the people that have thrown Jeremiah into a cistern, they want him dead. And Edbed Melek makes the case, we are not going to let this prophet die there. We've got to get him out. And so the king says, okay, send you with 30 men in the New Revised Standard Version uh, in the 
uh, new Revised Standard Version says three men, but in the new International Version says three men. But take a posse with you. Take backup. Go get him. He pauses. He gets rags so that Jeremiah won't be hurt in this rescue process. They lower down the rags in a rope. He puts the rags under his arms, then the rope, and he's pulled up to safety. And then we're told that afterwards, uh, Jeremiah returns to the courtyard of the guard. That's where he is when the city falls. Now, there's a little bit more in chapter 39 about Ebed-Melech, and there's this prophecy that Jeremiah gives about Ebed-Melech. This is from Jeremiah 39, beginning at verse 15. While Jeremiah had been confined to the courtyard of the guard, the word of the Lord came to him, Go and tell Ebed-Melech the Cushite, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. I'm about to fulfill my words against the city, words concerning disaster, not prosperity that time they will be fulfilled before your eyes. But I will rescue you on that day, declares the Lord, and you will not be given into the hands of those you fear. I will save you, and you will not fall by the sword, but will escape with your life, because you trusted in me, declares the Lord. So it's a nice uh, bookend to what we know about this uh, Ethiopian official, this Cushite official, mm-hmm. that his kindness to Jeremiah and his boldness to rescue him changed his life forever. He was not killed when Jerusalem fell. He did not fall to the sword. So a life-changing act of kindness. Yeah. So that brings up a good question. What do we know about this Edbed Melech? We do not know very much about him at all. We don't even know his name. Edbed Melech is not a name. It's a title. Mm. It means servant of the king. In fact, we have a a seal, not from Ed, that Edbed Melech, another Edbed Melech, who was uh, named Jahazaniah, and it has the name Jahazaniah, and then it has in Hebrew, in, in Old Hebrew writing, Paleo Hebrew writing, Edbed Melech, and then a picture of a rooster, which apparently was a you know, popular symbol at that time for royal seals. We have another seal um, made from a different kind of stone about the same time that says not a servant of the king, but son of the king. So it's an indication, I think, that Ebed-Melech, that title, is a pretty important title in the uh, kingdom of Judah at that time. Uh, The other uh, word that we have to describe him, besides being a Cushite, is country of origin uh, from the what is now modern-day Ethiopia or Eritrea. And then we have that title eunuch, which we think means a high official as it does later on in the book of Acts when we come across another Ethiopian eunuch, another Ethiopian official mm. that responds to the gospel as it's presented to him. Very good. Well, in, in that story we talked about uh, in the book of Acts, that you, that Ethiopian seemed to be pretty well off, you know. Um, and what do you mean by that? Well, <laughs> he was. I thought he seems rich to me. He's in a chariot. Right, and if I understand it correctly, chariots at this time were basically a flatbed, a, a buckboard. What we in Scottsdale would call a buckboard. Yeah, a buckboard, yes. and he carried by a number of slaves, probably. And then um, he's reading a scroll, uh, which would have been very expensive too. So he had to be a man of means. A man of means, that's, right? Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Well, let's talk a little more about cisterns 
in that day and age. We've, we've covered a lot of it already, but Pastor Steve showed one, the picture of a, of a cistern from uh, Jerusalem area. Right. So this was discovered in the city of David Digg. The city of David Digg has been going on for a number of decades now, and that's excavating the oldest part of Jerusalem, the original uh, area that King David ruled, and then the, the city of Jerusalem expanded during different periods of time. It's now a much larger site than just that old original site of Jerusalem. Is, and, this, is, is this potentially the one that Jeremiah was in? Or? Well, you kind of wondered about that. They discovered this. They uh, It was filled up, so they excavated and kept on going down and down and down and down. It's a huge cistern. It's 45 feet in diameter, uh, 25 feet down to get to the bottom of it. And they thought, well, maybe this is the very cistern that uh, Jeremiah was thrown into it. It makes sense. It's about in the right area of Jerusalem, could it be? But now uh, that they've had more time to uh, analyze this, they originally discovered in the 1990s and uh, now we think it was from about the 14th century A.D., so much uh, later than that. Too late, yeah. But, you know, maybe it was smaller in the time of Jeremiah and was further excavated in the 14th century. We don't, we don't know. Uh, but it's a great place to, to look at and kind of imagine Jeremiah down in, in a cistern and what that must have been like for him. Yeah, I was wondering if this was just a natural occurring opening in the rock that was used to hold water, but you say they actually dug these out. Right. It's just like if you're on a ranch today and you have a little low part of the ranch and when it rains, water flows to that, you might say, hey, well, instead of having just a little bit of water there, why don't I dig into that space and then we'll have a deeper um, uh, hole and more rainwater can be held there, mm-hmm. and that would be good. And you make sure you have the right kind of clay bottom to it so it doesn't seep out. And they did that sort of thing with cisterns cut into rock. Cisterns are cut into rock rather than in earth. But you would um, very often replaster the cistern. When I lived in Jerusalem at the uh, uh, Jerusalem University College, there were a number of cisterns there that were uh, centuries old. And we would, uh, before I got there, there used to be a time where they used that collected rainwater in the cisterns to water the gardens in, the, mm. in that school. They don't do that now, but once a year, all the students would uh, be involved in replastering the cisterns. Really? Interesting. Yeah. So uh, I, I was lucky. I, I got to that school after the um, national water system had been hooked up. And now you turn on the tap in Jerusalem, you get um, water that came from the Sea of Galilee mm. and purified and refined. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, the plastering would um, make sure that the water would stay in the cistern. Obviously. Right. It wouldn't leak through the uh, crack in the cistern or wouldn't leak through the natural limestone, which is um, uh, water porous, of course. That's why you get stalactites and stalagmites, by the way. Hmm. So I see in our notes we have some more bula. Or is there any additional information that you've gathered? So these are some of the same bula that we talked about before, okay. but I'm pointing out here that two of those funky names at the very beginning of Jeremiah chapter 38 are, we have um, a, a bula on each of those people, and this is Shahukal, uh, and we also have one of Gedaliah. Those are two of the four people that thought Jeremiah should be uh, killed as a traitor, and they threw him down into the cistern to begin with. So these were influential people. And I suppose maybe the king 
maybe too busy dealing with the pressures of Egypt and Babylon and everything else. You guys just do what you want. Exactly. I'm kind of finished with them anyway. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Well, that's interesting. That's Well, you know, this whole story rings so true. You could see all this happening, I mean, in real life. I you mean, really can. Yeah. I mean, the, the struggle, how do you keep your country safe? you got these big superpowers around you. Uh, which horse are you going to back mm-hmm. in that uh, struggle? And if you make the wrong decision, um, the kingdom falls, and that's what happened. Mm-hmm. And in the midst of that, God is saying through Jeremiah, the city will fall. You, you made some grave mistakes. You know, there's, there's no way around it. You've broken God's law. And then we have that um, sense of hope right in the middle of Jeremiah that after the city falls, after time, God will bring his people back. And of course, that's what happened 70 years later. We have each week looked at our eco-confessional standards. Today we have a couple of questions from the Westminster Larger Catechism, and they're dealing about the word being preached. A prophet is essentially a, a preacher. He's bringing forth God's word to the mm-hmm. people. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Question 158 says, by whom is the word of God to be preached? And the answer is, the word of God is to be preached only by such as are sufficiently gifted and also duly approved and called to that office. The next question, question 159, follows up on that. How is the word of God to be preached by those who are called to preach it? And the answer given, they that are called to labor in the ministry of the word are to preach sound doctrine diligently in season and out of season, plainly, not in the enticing word of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, faithfully making known the whole counsel of God, wisely applying themselves to the necessities and capacities of the hearers, zealously with fervent love to God and the souls of his people, sincerely aiming at his glory and their conversion, edification, and salvation. That's a tall order. It is a tall order, but it, it really puts very high the sense of when you're, you're speaking as a leader of God's people and you're saying, here's what God is trying to say to us, you really need to take that seriously and do it well to the best of your ability with God's help. And then question 160 says, What is required of those that hear the word preached? It is required of those that hear the word preached that they attend upon it with diligence, preparation, and prayer. Examine what they hear by the scriptures. Receive the truth with faith, love, meekness, and readiness of mind as the word of God. Meditate and confer with others about it. Hide it in their hearts and bring forth the fruit of it in their lives. And that's what we are doing with our life groups, trying to make sure that we do these things as hearers of the word. That's why we're doing this podcast. Uh, That's why we have our midweek study groups. Yeah, because we want to be able to apply the word of God to our lives Mm -hmm. each day. And we want the encouragement and help of other Christians as we do that. And we want to be an encouragement to fellow believers. Exactly. Well, each week we've had the C.S. Lewis quote of the week. And uh, what do you have for us this week, Bruce? So I have a quote from the last year of C.S. Lewis's life. 
he was interviewed by a member of the Billy Graham Association. And it's very interesting, uh, C.S. Lewis's view of the church and the fact that there were both good preachers and not so good preachers in the sense of people that were not trying to be faithful in a serious way to God's word. So the question is posed to C.S. Lewis, how do you feel then about the modern culture being de-Christianized? And he answers, I cannot speak to the political aspects of the question, but I have some definite views about the de-Christianizing of the church. I believe that there are many accommodating preachers and too many practitioners in the church who are not believers. Jesus did not say, go into all the world and tell the world that it is quite all right. (laughs) The gospel is something completely different. In fact, it is directly opposed to the world. The case against Christianity is made out in the world is quite strong. Every war, every shipwreck, every cancer case, every calamity contributes to making a prima facie case against Christianity. It is not easy to be a believer in the face of this surface evidence. It calls for a strong faith in Jesus Christ. Hmm. I, I never thought of it that way, but it is the objections we get to Christianity is is kind of summed up here. The you know how does how can a God that does this allows this that kind of stuff you know? And so ultimately, we can't depend on our own cleverness to answer those kind of objections. We really have to be in step with God and committed to the Lord ourselves and committed to the fact that God will help us as we seek to tell others about his love and grace in Jesus Christ. Well, for our Reformed quote, I'm, I'm going to take something out of uh, Eugene Peterson's Run with the Horses. Our uh, companion book for the series. Well, many of our people are reading this, so... Um, I thought this was a good little quote. Um, He says, Jeremiah was never popular. He was never surrounded with applause, but he was not friendless. In fact, Jeremiah was extremely fortunate in his friends. Twenty years or so earlier under King Jehoiakim, Jeremiah was almost murdered. But Ahikam Ben-Shaphan intervened and saved him. That's from Jeremiah 26, 24. Baruch was his disciple and secretary, loyal and faithful, sticking with him through difficult times to the very end. And then Edmund Melech, the Ethiopian eunuch, came to his aid. One friend in a lifetime is much, wrote Henry Adams. Two are many. Three are hardly possible. And then Peterson says, Jeremiah had three. He did indeed. So uh, it's something for us to remember when we feel like we're all alone, that we're probably not. Probably God has given us people who will stand with us and beside us. Mm. Bruce, would you pray for us? Love to. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you again for the example of your servant Jeremiah and his faithfulness to you in very troubling times and troubling circumstances. We pray for resiliency in our own faith, that we would not trust in our own wisdom, or our own cleverness, our own power, but that we'd put our trust fully in you, your goodness, your wisdom, your power, the fact that you rule and overrule all things. Lord, we thank you for your grace. You haven't just left us to deal with the consequences of our own mistakes, You give us grace. You love us. You welcome us into your family. You forgive us. And we're so grateful for that. 
Lord, help us to be faithful this day and this week, always trusting in your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Bruce. Thank you, Kirk.